Hello, everyone. I'm Bobby Franklin, and welcome back to Venture Capital, a podcast brought to you by NVCA, where there's an O in capital, as in Capitol Hill, where NVCA advocates for policies that support the U.S. startup ecosystem. One of the biggest policies we advocate for deals with making America the best place for creating and growing new innovative companies. The U.S. needs to attract the world's best entrepreneurs. We must be able to compete globally for talent. But right now, we are not winning that talent race. In this episode of Venture Capital, we are talking about the need for a startup visa. For those not familiar, a startup visa allows foreign entrepreneurs to come to America to build American companies and create American jobs. Right now, the U.S. does not have a startup visa, but other countries do. To cover all angles of this important issue, we have some great guests. You'll hear from California Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren, who introduced startup visa legislation, NVCA's policy expert on the issue, Jeff Farah, and Nishat Rastagi, a foreign entrepreneur who built a company in the U.S. but was forced to leave America last year because of the lack of a startup visa. We start the show with the Congresswoman. I'm so pleased to welcome our guest today on Venture Capital, Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren. She's a Democratic member of the United States House of Representatives, and she's served there since 1995. She represents the 19th District of California, based in the capital of Silicon Valley, San Jose, and the Santa Clara Valley. She's chair of the Committee on House Administration. She's a member of the Committee on the Judiciary, where she chairs the Subcommittee on Immigration and Citizenship, and certainly want to talk to her about immigration today. She's also a member of the Committee on Science, Space, and Technology. Congresswoman Lofgren, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. So I mentioned your district being kind of the capital of Silicon Valley. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you see the entrepreneurial ecosystem and the venture capital investors kind of close up in your district? Sure. I actually grew up in uh, Silicon Valley before it was Silicon Valley. Uh, and I've seen the tech uh, sector rise up around what was then the, an agricultural valley primarily. And it's been a real thrill to see uh, all of the scientists and inventors and technologists and investors that have created really an economic engine that is carrying the entire state of California. You know, you can't single out just one or two people, but, um, you know, I think government can do some things. You know, government can't create a company or an idea or an invention, but what we do can actually provide a framework for uh, innovators and investors and companies to flourish and, and thrive. Uh, sometimes it's by what we do, and sometimes it's by what we don't do. You know, I was remembering almost 10 years ago uh, last month when we stopped the Stop Online Piracy Act, which would have crippled the internet, frankly. And, you know, it's a rare occasion when a member of Congress can say, you know, I did that. This is a team sport in Congress. Uh, but I know that uh, had I not taken the steps that I had, likely there would have been a different outcome. And, uh, you know, that's an example of making severe technical mistakes in pursuing an actual problem. I mean, piracy is, in fact, a problem, but the remedy 
advance was a catastrophe. And so that's an example where you can prevent something from crippling uh, innovators. You know, I, I think about so many companies that have come and gone in the Valley. I mean, uh, Jim Clark and Silicon Graphics was so exciting. It's in the rear view mirror now. Netscape's in the rear view mirror. And uh, I remember back in, I think it was 1999, when Eric Schmidt, who I knew from his days uh, as an engineer, called me and said, you got to see this new thing I'm working on, this new startup. And I went up, I think it was in Palo Alto, and it was a little tiny space. And uh, Eric had uh, foosball. Um, and I thought, oh, come on, you know, this is, what, this is not... Uh, the right era, but he said, well, it's just kind of fun. It's not worth being, isn't it okay to be nostalgic? And of course it is. So, you know, this is the, the companies come and go. The technology always comes forward, but there's always something new. I mean, now we have Zoom, you know, it's actually just a few blocks from where I am now in downtown San Jose. So it's been a real honor and privilege to represent this area. Well, Congresswoman, you're talking about your district and how much you have seen it change there in Silicon Valley. You know, a, a lot of people around the world, we know over the last couple of decades, have come to Silicon Valley, studied what it takes to create dynamism in their own countries. And one of the things that has baffled us here at NVCA is... Why can't we get an immigration, you know, avenue for entrepreneurs around the world to come to the U.S.? And, and we've always referred to it as a startup visa. And let me just say thank you so much for your leadership in introducing the LIKE Act, which stands for the Let Immigrants Kickstart Employment Act. You know, it, it's one of these things where anybody we've talked to uh, on Capitol Hill, either side of the aisle, and we say, hey, wouldn't it be a smart idea if there is an entrepreneur somewhere in the world that wants to come to the U.S. and start a company? Wouldn't we like to almost roll out a red carpet and have them come do it? And you've clearly picked up on that and you've introduced legislation. Talk a little bit about that process and, and what kind of stands out to you about introducing a bill like a startup visa. Well, first, let me thank you and the organization for the very helpful input uh, that you provided on what is the rhythm of a successful tech company, because we want to make sure that we are targeting legislation to real world benchmarks in terms of success. So that's been very helpful. It's a sad day, really, where we are in immigration. I introduced the bill, although I know there are some Republican members who agree with it. I couldn't get a single Republican to put their name on the bill. Uh, so I finally just introduced it myself. And it's become such a hot button for Republicans because they've politicized immigration to, to inflame anti-immigrant sentiment for political advantage to the point where you can't even make smart business decisions on immigration. It's one of the reasons why we see uh, tech centers like Toronto now uh, surging at our expense. I mean, you you know that the tech recruiters from Canada are down here in Silicon Valley. 
Well, it, it, speaking of Canada, they have a startup visa, yes, like a couple of dozen other countries. And, and that's where I think this is my colleague here at NVCA says it's sort of the ultimate free lunch for our country. If we would just get our act together and get this across the goal line, we could have a free lunch, meaning we could have companies and jobs immediately if we had a way for entrepreneurs to come here. Well, it doesn't make any sense what we're doing now. And we have, along with many other things in immigration law, we're looking for other routes to move it forward. I serve on, as you mentioned, not only uh, the Judiciary Committee chairing the Immigration Subcommittee, but also the Science Committee, uh, where I've been proud to serve for many, many years. And the America Competes Act was uh, primarily shepherded through that committee. But after we were through, I had a chance to uh, include, uh, through the Rules Committee, uh, two important provisions and a few others on immigration. One is the LIKE Act. If you want to be competitive, you need scientists to compete. Uh, And the other is a provision uh, for recipients of PhDs, from research universities uh, in the United States or their equivalents in other countries to obtain permanent residence without regard to numerical limitation. Those are two very key provisions uh, that I hope will uh, stay in the bill. We've got a few other uh, bells and whistles in terms of dual intent for uh, some students pursuing higher ed and STEM fields and other essential personnel with a master's in in some fields and medical doctors. But uh, I'm hoping that especially the LIKE Act can be make it completely across the finish line. Well, we're going to work hard to help do just that. We have already been talking to your colleagues across the Capitol and the Senate side, both sides of the aisle, to point out how important this bill is and how important it is to the competitiveness of the country. So we, we want to be your partner in that, and we'll, we'll keep working on that. Very good. I know that the Biden administration is intending to support these provisions, and I've been in touch with them as well. It's very welcome news. That's awesome. Well, once again, can't thank you enough for your work on this. This is so important to the you, it's look, it's important to the country. Yep. It's it's certainly important to your congressional district. It's important to your state, but it's important to every state because there are entrepreneurs around the world that uh want to come here. Although I have to say a lot of these other countries have figured out that if you can mimic the ecosystem that we've created in this country by making sure there are investors and there's long-term capital to support those entrepreneurs, you can keep them there. And we see it in the data. Not not 20 years ago, right. over 80% of global venture capital dollars went to U.S. startups. And now our market share is about 50%. Now, the good news is there are a lot of countries that need entrepreneurship. And so we, we, we don't want to take it all back, but right. we want to make sure that we are attracting the best and brightest from around the world from a competitiveness standpoint. You know, just take a look at some of the companies. I mean, I was just uh, thinking about, you know, Eric Schmidt, uh, who was the grown-up at Google at the beginning, but Sergey Brin and Larry Page starting that up at Stanford. They had NSF grants. 
Sergei is not a, an American-born person. And so now you have tens of thousands of Americans happily employed in that company, earning good salaries and creating a lot of innovation. You That is replicated across Silicon Valley. But I would note this, the venture... The Venture Capital Association provided essential advice on the rhythm of entrepreneurship. But these startups are not limited to tech companies. It could be any company where an entrepreneur can start a business and employ Americans and add to the prosperity of the United States. Why wouldn't we want that? It makes sense, right? Venture capital is rocket fuel for people like you mentioned the founders of Google when they're trying to really scale up into something big. And that turns out it, it happens to come with lots of jobs. And that's what the country needs. And even though a lot of the capital is concentrated in your district and maybe in New York and in Massachusetts, the jobs are spread out across the country. In fact, over 60% of the jobs of VC-backed companies are outside of California, New York, and Massachusetts. And I think that's a good message for all policymakers. Well, and it's important to really celebrate the VC model because if you take a look, you know, people like to analyze how did Silicon Valley emerge? Why here? And there are a number of factors. A lot of people think of uh, Dean Terman at the Stanford School of Engineering being a key component. I think uh, that was important, but it wasn't all of it. Some of it is people like to be here because it's a great place to live. I think what Stanford did in terms of partnering its faculty with industry, which was not done in other parts of the country, also played a role. But if you don't look at the role of venture capital, you're missing uh, really the engine because it's risk-taking. And it's not just, uh, it's not like getting a bank loan where you have to have everything in place. It, it's evaluation of risk and it's really banking on ideas and talent with the understanding that you're going to lose sometimes, but the, but the uh, unicorns and the successes will more than make up for the losses. And that's proven to be true. And it's absolutely fueled uh, the technology industry. I agree. And and the other thing that is unique about our country compared to others is that when there is a failure, because as you said, most of the early stage investments fail, they do. But thankfully, there are the investors to take those lumps, knowing that some are going to succeed. And when they do, they're going to uh, have a really good outcome. It has been, well, somebody that failed, learned, you learn a lot more from your mistakes and your failures than you do your successes. Failure is a learning experience. And that makes them that much closer to a success. So couldn't agree more. I, I want to turn to another topic, uh, antitrust. You're on the Judiciary Committee. Yep. You have big tech companies in your district. And little ones. I know there's bipartisan, you know, sort of anger at, at big tech companies. And there are a lot of different uh, bills that are looking to kind of go after the big tech companies. One the area that we have been particularly interested in are the legislative efforts to stop sort of the mergers and acquisitions of the big tech companies. And you led an effort on the House side to say, hey, wait a minute. Now, th there's another side of this table. Uh, you know, your, you, your colleagues are sort of focused on four, maybe five companies 
But when it comes to mergers and acquisitions, it's that entrepreneurial ecosystem sitting on the other side of that table that you you need there to be exits and you need companies to be bought by others. And you need that entrepreneur and those investors to take those kind of exit opportunities and then turn it back into another company and let's go do it again. And I, I really appreciate the work you've done on this. Talk about this issue, though, of antitrust and the big tech companies. Well, I think uh, you're right. Uh, there is a lot of animosity uh, towards uh, the tech sector among uh, some members of the House and Senate. I think, to be honest, there are some really serious issues uh, in some of the social network uh, space that involve disinformation and manipulation of data to the disadvantage of democracy and also for commercial and cultural purposes, that that's problematic. These antitrust bills do nothing about that, however. They basically, as drafted, target or meant to target just four companies. And those four companies are Amazon, Google, Facebook, and Apple. Now, it's interesting that, you know, that's never been the way antitrust bills have been written in the past. Interesting that with Facebook's dive in the stock market, it may have fallen off the list, which I don't think is what the authors intended. It's not the way to approach this, number one. Number two, I think there are legitimate issues in mergers and acquisitions. You can look at some of the larger companies and say, hmm, that some of those acquisitions were meant to, you know, to kill competition and had really competition problems. The truth is most of those questionable uh, acquisitions or mergers were never challenged. So it's not at all clear that the current law is insufficient uh, to protect competition because no one tried. Number three, you're right. You know, you're starting a company and there are really three exit ramps. You can go bankrupt, you can be acquired, or you can go public. And they're all viable, but going public is not that easy. Uh, so to say, as the uh, Jeffries bill does, that these three or four companies are prohibited, and basically that's what the bill does, prohibited from all mergers and acquisitions, I think it's the wrong approach. I also think that the other bills, the Jayapal and Cicilline bill, would actually require the breakup of these four companies. It would, it's a goal, not a remedy. And there, that remedy sometimes is necessary. Take a look at what happened with the telecoms. It was Judge Green here in uh, the District of Columbia and later the Telecom Reform Act in 96. That was a necessity. And actually that monopoly had crippled technology innovation. Look what's happened since that. But usually, as I say, that's a remedy, not a goal. And it's it's got the whole the whole approach is incorrect and inconsistent with you know history. Having said that, I do think competition policy is is very important. And if any of these companies or others. Um, either in the tech sector or outside of the tech sector, pharmaceuticals, airlines, transportation. If there is a restraint of competition, then there ought to be action to break, to break that stranglehold on competition. I think you've 
described it in a really elegant way because uh, you're right. There is a time and a place and a procedure to deal with some of the issues. But uh, I think you hit on the concern we have, which is, but by making some blanket statement that these companies can't continue to do mergers and acquisitions, you're completely ignoring who's sitting on the other side of that table and how that can be healthy and good for the entrepreneurial ecosystem and to, to move things along. I really appreciate your work there. We all do. Congresswoman Lofgren, can't thank you enough for your work on immigration. Can't thank you enough for your work on antitrust, making sure that we think about the entrepreneurial ecosystem. We look forward to continuing to partner with you as much as we can to make sure your district and those all across the country are vibrant with entrepreneurial activity. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks a lot. My next guest on Venture Capital is our very own General Counsel, Jeff Farah. Jeff has been with NVCA a number of years and leads a bunch of our public policy issues. Jeff, thanks for joining us on Venture Capital. Bobby, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Jeff, we're talking about immigration today, and that's an area that you lead us on. So it's great to have you here. The first question I have is, why do we at NVCA focus on the issue of immigration? Well, Bobby, the reality is, is that foreign-born entrepreneurs have played an incredible role in the American economy, especially in the last 50 years or so, as venture capital has, has risen in this country. And for those in the venture industry, they understand implicitly the role that immigrant entrepreneurs have played. There are so many companies that are just iconic American brands and companies that were founded by first-generation and second-generation immigrants into this country. All you have to do is look back at the COVID-19 pandemic and you see companies like Pfizer and Moderna that were founded by immigrants. They have immigrant CEOs. You think about Zoom that made it a lot easier for us to all navigate the pandemic. The founder of Zoom was an immigrant. And then you think of other companies out there that are even more obscure, companies like DuPont and Levi Strauss. And the list goes on and on in terms of the companies that are out there that were fortunate that immigrants decided to come to this country and launch new high-growth companies. You know, that's such a good point. I'm so glad you mentioned those companies. And I know we've looked at studies where, whether you look at unicorn companies or you look at other uh, demographics of companies, and there's just this super high correlation to founders or co-founders being immigrants or certainly second generation. I guess the, the question I have for you is, as you think about how important it is uh, as an issue, Walk us through some of the history and some of the work that NVCA has done on this issue. Sure. You know, Bobby, you alluded to a lot of the stats out there, and they're, they're really incredible. Uh, some studies find that about half of, of unicorns in this country are from foreign-born founders. There's an NVCA study that looked at the public companies, companies that went public in the 2010s, and we found that about a third of all venture-backed CEOs were by foreign-born entrepreneur founders. And then a group we partner a lot with that you're on the board of is the Center for American Entrepreneurship. And they found that 43% of the founders of Fortune 500 companies were founded by first or second generation immigrants. And so clearly the impact is, is incredible. And so what we've done over time is to really try and shine a light 
on the immigrant entrepreneur and make sure that policymakers understand the rich history that has happened, but also understand a lot of the challenges that are in place. Because as great as this history is, the unfortunate reality is that in this country, we make it far too difficult for a foreign-born entrepreneur with a great idea to come to the United States and launch a new high-growth company. And so we have lobbied for a number of years on an idea called the Startup Visa. We've also been active on something very similar called the International Entrepreneur Rule. And this has been the corner of the immigration universe that NBCA has really led on because we understand that our members are very, very anxious to try and work with the next generation of great American companies. But we need those founders to come to the United States in order to do that. That's yeah, a great point. I know another stat that we use a lot is just looking back, not that very long ago, 15, 20 years, I think it's something like we in the United States had 80 to 90 percent of global venture capital dollars invested in our country. And as you and I know, the last few years, that's dropped down to about 50 percent, which means that on a global perspective, we have lost market share. Now, the good news is it, it doesn't mean we've <laughs> invested any any less. And in fact, we continue to set records. But what it shows is, is the rest of the world has figured out what it means to support entrepreneurs and build great companies in their country. So now, even if we had a startup visa, you know, the next step after that, I think, is still to convince people that they want to come to the United States. But but we can't do that if they don't have a, a pathway here. Uh, Jeff, let's talk about kind of some of the different areas that we have, have worked on on this issue. I know that there's uh, startup visa efforts were here before you and I got to NBCA. Uh, we're, we're hoping to help ushered across the goal line, but maybe you could talk about different efforts. And and I would also include our efforts around the international entrepreneur rule, going back to the Obama administration, through the Trump administration, and now into the Biden administration. Absolutely, Bobby. It's been a key area for NBCA over the years. I would begin by noting that in the 2013 Comprehensive Immigration Reform Bill that, that passed the Senate, which is really the, the biggest immigration piece of legislation that's happened in the last few decades, there was a startup visa that was included in that bill. And that was certainly something that was in incredible to see, but it unfortunately didn't make it across the finish line. We've also been very supportive of some discrete startup visa legislation over the years. The most notable is the Bipartisan Startup Act, and that's from a group of U.S. senators led by Senator Mark Warner, former venture capitalist, Senator Jerry Moran from Kansas, and they're joined by Senator Klobuchar from Minnesota and Senator Blunt from Missouri. And the Startup Act does a lot of great things to promote startup activity in this country, and it's been a fantastic platform for doing that. The startup visa piece is certainly the most consequential to the, the venture ecosystem. And so that's something that we have lended support to for a number of years. And then most recently, Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren introduced the Let Immigrants Kickstart Employment Act. And that was a bill that we were thrilled to both work with Ms. Lofgren's staff on, as well as lend our support. We ended up rallying a group of 19 entrepreneurial-focused organizations to, to back that bill and have really been pushing it ever since it was introduced in August of 2021. And so the latest thing that's happened there is, is very exciting, which is that Congresswoman Lofgren was successful in having her bill included in the House Competitiveness Bill that passed recently. This is called the America Competes Act. And so the Lofgren bill is now 
has passed the House, and as Congress kicks off discussions on a competitiveness bill, we're hopeful that the Senate and House will decide to include this in the final version. And so NBCA has been hard at work the last several weeks, really making the case for why it is that a startup visa is an integral part of competitiveness legislation. Because ultimately, we can put all the money we want to into basic research and technology transfer, and we're certainly supportive of those things. But ultimately, what we need most in this country is a company to pop out the other end. We need to make sure that there are founders that are ready to go to take that technology that is federally backed and turn it into new private sector companies that Americans can go to work at. And Bobby, you mentioned the International Entrepreneur Rule. I'll just mention briefly, this is something where in the final days of the Obama administration, it became clear that comprehensive immigration reform was not going to move forward. And so the administration decided to take a look at the tools and resources that they had from an administrative agency perspective and see how it is that they could make it easier for foreign-born entrepreneurs to come to the United States. And that was how the International Entrepreneur Rule was first created. And NVCA was very actively involved in that process throughout the comment period. And that rule was actually finalized just a handful of days before President Obama left office. And so when President Trump came into D.C., we knew we had our work cut out for us and we needed to go and try and convince them to retain this job creation instrument. And so we lobbied the Trump administration. And unfortunately, they decided to pull the rug out from under the international entrepreneur rule. That then resulted in NVCA filing its first ever lawsuit against the federal government. We alleged that they had violated the Administrative Procedure Act in terms of how it was they took down the entrepreneur rule. And fortunately, we won in in federal court, which was a great victory for the entrepreneurial ecosystem. And so that enabled the Biden administration to step in in its early days and really breathe new life into the international entrepreneur rule. And as a result, we're seeing foreign-born entrepreneurs applying for this. And it's been fantastic to see a lot of our members, even back entrepreneurs, that are using the international entrepreneur rule. Jeff, we talked about the LIKE Act. We talked to Ms. Lofgren earlier in the episode. We know, and you just shared with us, that it's part of the competes acts now. We hope it is able to get across the goal line. But if it doesn't, I mean, we're not giving up here, right? What, what what's, our, what's our next game plan if it doesn't work in the competes act? You know, immigration politics being what they are, it's, it's always a challenge. And, and we do recognize that, that there is some resistance to including this in the competitiveness bill. We are trying to overcome that actively right now. If ultimately we're not in the final package, then we will continue to try and build support for standalone legislation. Before the competitiveness bill was inclusive of a startup visa, Representative Lofgren was hard at work building support for her bill, trying to move that through the House. We were very actively trying to help her do that. I think one other great thing about the bill being included in the competitiveness bill is that it's really given us a reason to go knock on more doors up on Capitol Hill, talk more about this problem. And when we're talking about it, you see a lot of heads nodding. You see a lot of people understanding that this is a ultimate free lunch to be able to have these individuals come here to our country to create new American jobs. And so this is something where, you know, whether or not we're ultimately in the final competitiveness bill, we're finding a lot of new friends and new supporters up on Capitol Hill that understand that our country needs the dynamism that only can come from new company formation. And one way to achieve that is to have more immigrant entrepreneurs in our country. I think you said it well. We're not going to let an effort, if this doesn't work, stop us. We've been at this a long time. As you pointed out, NVCA was working on this before we got here. And so we're going to 
keep at it till we get it across the goal line. Jeff Farah, thank you so much for joining us today on Venture Capital. Thank you, Bobby. And last but certainly not least is my next guest. He's a foreign entrepreneur who came to study in the U.S. and then created a company here. But last year, he was forced to leave because we don't have a startup visa. Please welcome Nishat Rastagi, who is joining us from India. Hello, Nishat. Hi, Bobby. How's it going? Great. Thanks for joining us. Nishat, tell us about how you came to the U.S. to begin with, to start your school career here. I came to the U.S. Um, for computer science at University of California in, in the beautiful city of San Diego. And with some original dreams of actually studying technology and computer science and also starting a company one day. And part of the reason that I picked the U.S. is uh, the Silicon Valley is there. It's like the tech capital and the tech hub of the world. And you have all the top and the best, most innovative companies that are coming out of California specifically. So I wanted to be part of that ecosystem and build a new technology business. Um, and, and I sort of had this dream or sort of the thought process sort of started shaping up back in the ninth grade that, hey, one day I want to start a company in the U.S. in Silicon Valley one day. And so it, it was a sort of a dream come true coming to, to the U.S., starting in SoCal, then moving to the Bay Area after that uh, and starting the company. Tell us about the company. Yeah, so my company is Make, and, and what we are doing is we are digitizing the process uh, and the industry manufacturing, specifically when it comes to ordering custom manufactured parts, whether it's 3D printed parts, uh, so we do a lot of 3D printing, or it's a CNC machining parts uh, or injection molding parts. So uh, if, you, if you look at the process of manufacturing today, so let's say you're an engineer or mechanical engineer at, at a mid, uh, mid-market company or even companies like Tesla, Apple, or Google, the way you procure parts is extremely slow, manual, and complex, even in 2022. And so the way uh, the current process works is, is, is heavily reliant on legacy infrastructure, such as email, phone calls, and attachments, and spreadsheets. And there, there is no way to digitize, or there's no digital platform for something like this. Um, and, and the whole process is extremely complex and long and slow. And so if you look at a car, for example, uh, a, a typical car tends to have electronic items and the audio systems from about six years ago. And the reason is that it took six years to, to, to assemble or, and procure all the different parts to make a vehicle. And so what we are doing is we're building digital platforms to really automate, digitize and simplify the way engineering teams today procure parts. And so we have been able to bring down the timeline to procure parts from all the way up to, to from, from 18 months, traditionally 18 months, to as fast as one week or two weeks. And the way we've been able to do it is by building a digital network of shops across the U.S. and uh, some in the Asia, Asia region. Uh, again, that depends on the, on the quantity of parts you need. So, um, yeah, and I think uh, this is extremely helpful to the local manufacturers across the U.S. who are extremely good at manufacturing parts, but they lack technical expertise or the sales and marketing expertise to sell to the Microsoft and the Google of the world. So, so we sort of like uh, help them out a lot too. And, and as we grow, they grow and they can hire more people. So the manufacturing sector grows with us. Let me ask you a question, Nishat, just to make sure I understand. So you are sort of sitting at that intersection, making it easier for your customers. Now, who are your customers? Right. So, so my customers are 
mechanical engineering teams and supply chain teams at autonomous vehicle companies, at uh, electric vehicle companies, at medical device companies, consumer electronic. Since manufacturing is uh, less of a vertical thing, more of a horizontal thing, we sort of provide our services to companies across the board, but we are heavily uh, working with autonomous and electric vehicle companies. Robotic companies are a huge segment, uh, IoT, wearables. And so uh, this is huge. And so one of our clients is Microsoft, for example, and Stanley Black & Decker, another Fortune 10 company. So you created this company, and I think you founded it in 2017. Is that correct? Well, yeah. Well, uh, 2017 to about 2019, mid-2019, I, I was pursuing a sort of a different idea along 3D printing, but the, the exact business that we're building right now came about in the middle of 2019. Awesome. Takes a while, right, when you're an entrepreneur. It's also my first startup out of college, so uh, I'm pretty humble and I'm willing to pivot as and when needed. Well, it sounds like a, a great business, but let's get to the sort of issue of this podcast, which is about your immigration status. So you were over here on a student visa. You became an entrepreneur. You created a company that's bringing value to some of the largest corporations in our country, as well as some mid-market and startup corporations. You've you found an area that you can help basically everybody improve. You've helped drive out time, and time is money, and you found this niche. And then tell the story when you were basically told, sorry, you have to leave the United States. Despite the fact that you're creating value here for so many people, tell us about kind of what happened that led you to have to go back to India. Yeah, so this this was like uh, sometime like in the, in the 2019, 2020, like the onset of COVID that, that I, I kind of knew that, hey, this is... This is coming to an end. At that time, there was uh, something called International Entrepreneur Rule that lets you, I guess, again, build a business for two years. And there are like options of sort of getting a green card or like uh, or being on a visa called H-1B visa. But the H-1B visa is quite restrictive for a startup founder, uh, especially an early one, because it has a lot of restrictions on the equity you can have. So you cannot be a majority control holder and you have to have a structure in place that that is in many uh, cases, quite hurtful to the business itself and, and to your journey as an entrepreneur. So around that time, like uh, the international entrepreneur rule was was sort of canceled or basically inactive based on what I learned from all the attorneys I spoke with. And so uh, that, that was honestly one of my hopes to to kind of do that. And then Maybe in the meantime, I had this like, I would say like a ray of hope that maybe I can structure my company in, in that two year or one and a half year time frame so that I can fit for an H-1B visa, which is again, a lottery based visa. And it's quite hurtful and hard to get. So, I mean, at that time, like I would say like around like early 2020, I, I knew that my time is coming to an end and I have to go back to India. And unfortunately I did. <laughs> so I did come back. So you moved back to India, but you're still running your company. You're just having, I assume you're having to do it like in the middle of the night to try to run your company here in the U.S. Is that the way it's working? Yeah, I mean, I'm in India, which is a completely opposite time zone to the U.S., uh, especially California. So I, I, I work from, uh, I would say I started on like 10 p.m. here and worked till like 6, 6 to 7 a.m. in the morning. So my schedule is completely California schedule almost. But your desire, you have companies, well-known companies in the U.S. that are your customers. Your desire is to build a big business. 
to significantly make a difference in, in this case, the new wave of 3D manufacturing and making sure that we make progress here. So you're, you're back in India, you're doing basically running a company remotely in a weird time zone, the exact opposite time zone. You could obviously benefit from a startup visa. And I'm sure you're aware that there are countries around the world that have created startup visas that are exactly for this fact pattern so that you can, as an entrepreneur who is creating value, creating jobs, solving problems, you can do that here in the United States, which is, as I heard your story, that's exactly where you want to do it, correct? Yeah, so I I think you were asking why America, right? So uh, I think America is really special, and and California uh, in America is an extremely special place. Um, In the Bay Area, like, you have something called a beehive effect, uh, where you have incredibly talented people that come here from across the world who are willing to take a bet on a new technological advancement and innovation. And uh, the people there uh, have, have growth mindset, and they are more willing to try out new ideas and new uh, sort of bizarre, crazy approaches to solving problems. And since they're quite open-minded, a lot of them, again, tend to find success. And, and, and the result is these massively innovative and large companies like Tesla, Apple, Google, etc. So th- there's some kind of magic uh, that I see in the Bay Area that, that is hard to replicate. And it's all because of the people there. Well, the thing that strikes me about your story is that a, it's so important that we get a startup visa in our country so that you, frankly, you should have a red carpet. You should have a, you know, like, let's welcome you here with open arms because you're creating jobs, you're solving problems, you're helping our existing companies. But the other thing about your story that I picked up on is it's not just the Teslas or the, you know, EV car makers or the Microsofts or others, you're also helping the manufacturing base, which could be located outside of California, could be a manufacturing company somewhere else in the middle of, of America, where you're helping kind of be the go-between, take out time for those manufacturers to be able to create new and innovative products for existing large corporations. You're helping all parts of this ecosystem. We are like present in, in more than 25 states in the U.S. And uh, we have manufacturers across Michigan, Texas, Illinois, the Carolinas, uh, the, the Colorado and uh, all these states. And so what is interesting is these people are highly skilled, extremely good manufacturers. Um, when it comes to like the technical term of tolerances, for example, they're extremely good at making parts. Um, but they, they are also generations like they're like a third generation shop that they're sort of running because the grandfather started and the the father took on and all that. So these guys are extremely good at making parts and have a lot of experience, uh, but what they lack is technical expertise. And so um, having a company like Make in the middle is extremely helpful for them to grow, for their business to grow, and for them to hire more people, which, which does promote and flourish the manufacturing sector, which is the need of the R for the U.S., it needs to have a resilient supply chain, and we saw that during COVID crisis. And so I think manufacturing sector uh, needs a lot of boost, and, and my company is doing its, playing its uh, role in, in providing that boost. But I, I, like you said, I would love to have the U.S. let me come there and, and build my business because working opposite ours is quite hard, and you want to be in the ecosystem to talk to people and meet them. Well, I think you have just 
kind of given us an incredible commercial on why it is so important that we in the United States find a way to make sure that entrepreneurs like you have a chance to come here and build such an amazing company that can have such a positive impact, as you said, on 20 some odd states so far, right? If you were here, if you could get around and see others in other states, it would probably be every state. Let me just ask you, if you could talk directly to policymakers here in Washington, what would your message be to them? To keep America competitive at a global level, uh, we need not close the doors to amazingly talented people who really want to come to America and, and build a great, great business. We want to rather welcome them, like you said, with a red carpet. And these people can build great sort of businesses, add to the American economy, and, and will surely provide a lot of employment to a lot of American people. And who doesn't want that? That's great. Nishat Rastagi, joining us from India. Thank you so much for sharing your story about why a startup visa is so important to help your company and how your company could help so many all across the country. Thank you for joining us on Venture Capital. Thanks a lot, Bobby. I really appreciate the conversation. Well, that wraps up this episode of Venture Capital. Thanks for listening. But before we gavel out, here's another fun fact about Washington. Did you know that two presidents kept alligators at the White House? It's true. Both Herbert Hoover and John Quincy Adams had pet gators at the White House. Again, thank you for listening to Venture Capital, a podcast brought to you by NVCA. Hope you enjoyed the show because investing in tomorrow starts with smart policies today. I'm your host, Bobby Franklin, wishing good days ahead. Bye for now.